Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We started this section of Scripture last week. And it's such a rich and deep passage that I wish I had a better accent to read it in. I was tempted to find somebody to come up here and read it, uh, but the Word of God stands on its own. And so let me say a prayer and we'll read this passage together. Father, we come to you today and we, as we sang a few minutes ago, it's our prayer that you would show us Christ through the preaching of your word, that you would reveal yourself, that you would speak clearly to us and and that you would use your word this morning to change our hearts and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ, that we may reflect your glory and your majesty to a lost and dying world. We pray that in us they would see you. That they would not see us, but that they would see you in us. Father, we understand that long ago, at many times and in many ways, you spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken most clearly through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's him that we desire to know and exalt today. We know that you spoke all things into existence by just the the words you created everything. So we know with that kind of spoken word and power that you possess that we acknowledge that just one single word from you today could change everything about our lives and our circumstances. If you speak to us today, you can bring freedom and hope and joy and endurance and patience and conviction. So we ask that you would do that. Would you speak to us as we're listening? Would you use your word today to teach us? By your Holy Spirit, would you give us discernment? Help us to listen carefully. Would you speak, Lord, in spite of myself? Would you speak in spite of our undeserving nature? Would you speak to us as an act of continuing grace on your children whom you deeply love for your own purposes and for your own glory? And we ask it this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 together. The Word of God says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, if you were here last week or if you listened online during the week, you know that last week we talked about the fact that God has been speaking he is a God who reveals Himself, who makes Himself known. And, and for hundreds, for thousands of years, ever since the beginning of creation, God has been speaking clearly and making Himself known. And this isn't a mystery. We talked about last week two different types of revelation. There is that general revelation, those two theological terms, general revelation and special revelation, that in general, in common ways, God has made Himself known. You understand that because you know Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens, what? They 
Declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim His faithfulness. You know that because of Romans 1, 18 and 19 that God in many ways and many days has made Himself known and He's made Himself abundantly clear to all people so that all men are what? They're without excuse. He has made Himself known in that general revelation way. But He has also made Himself known in what we call special revelation. That is in very specific, clear ways He reveals Himself. Most clearly through the Word of God. Most clearly through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the truth that we talked about last week. That God has made Himself known. He has made Himself known in these ways. And so this week, we focus on the author of Hebrews. We don't know who He is. We know that He was writing to a Hebrew community. Uh, This was a mixed crowd. There were some believers in the group. There were some unbelievers in the group. But this is a, it's not specifically a church. It's just a Hebrew community. Uh, And we know that by all the textual clues that we read throughout the book of Hebrews. We know that there are at least two groups in mind within the context of these Hebrews. Some are believers. They believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, We started this series in chapter 10, and we got some textual clues about who they are. They had suffered terribly. Persecution, beatings, being carried off, having their possessions removed from them forcefully. They were persecuted. And in the midst of the believers being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, in this Hebrew Jewish community, some of them were tempted to backslide into Judaism back into their former ways. Now I know that we can identify with that. How many of us struggle with backsliding? How many of us struggle when times get difficult and pressure is on to fall back into different ways? Maybe a pattern of anger. Maybe a pattern of abuse. Maybe a pattern of frustration. Maybe a pattern of addiction. uh, Maybe a pattern of toxic thinking. We understand the temptation to slide away from Christ when we experience persecution or difficulty or struggle. This first group of Jewish Christians were experiencing that temptation. So the author of Hebrews is, he's encouraging them by exalting Jesus high. He's encouraging them saying, don't neglect so great a salvation. Continue, persevere, endure. We're going to get to that in these chapters. But the second group he has in mind of these Hebrew Jewish people in this community are unbelievers. They're unbelievers. They're just culturally connected to this community through their ethnic identity as Jew. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't understand the gospel. Some of them don't even acknowledge Jesus to be who he was. They're just here because there are other Jews in this predominantly Roman setting. So those are the two crowds. And in those crowds, the author is focused on exalting Jesus, introducing them to Jesus. One, so the believers won't backslide. But two, so that those who don't believe will believe. And so he introduces Jesus in this majestic introduction to this passage. How many of you are terrified of public speaking? Just raise your hand if you don't mind. Lots of you. You would get weak need, and if I asked you to come up here and speak right now, it's a... How many of you have on purpose avoided the family introductions? All right, anybody? Because you don't want to be up here, right? The idea of speaking publicly is a legitimate fear. Matter of fact, uh, in some rankings, it is um, more people are terrified of public speaking than they are of death. 
Public speaking causes people to be terrified. But, but at some point in all of our lives, we have to stand up and do some public speaking, right? How many of you have spoken at a wedding? Right? Raise your hand. Right? You've spoken at a wedding. Maybe you were a bridesmaid or maybe you were a, a groomsman and you had to, to give a speech of some kind. And so you got your note cards or maybe you're the kind of person that can wing it and you can just speak impromptu and do a good job like that. It can be terrifying if you have to introduce someone. You, know, you want to be humorous, you want to be truthful, you want to highlight the best parts and the most notable things about somebody that you're introducing them. But how would you introduce you know, the most important person in the world? That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's trying to do an introduction to people who may or may not be ready to hear about Jesus. Introductions and speeches can be tricky, right? Uh, you can have bad information. You could exaggerate, you could have bad timing, you could have boring facts, uh, you could have the wrong person doing an introduction, you could have wrong information. In all those ways, giving a speech or giving an introduction can be terribly tricky. When we first moved to Pennsylvania almost 10 years ago, uh, I came on staff at a church in Warrington called Riverside Community Church. And as an associate pastor, from time to time, I would go fill in at other churches when they needed somebody to preach. And there was one particular place in uh, Absecon. You know where Absecon is, anybody? Right outside of Atlantic City. And uh, it was a little church there that had been without a pastor for two or three years. And it was just barely hanging on, maybe 15 or 20 adults really struggling. And so they needed a pastor, somebody just to come fill in. And so my schedule was pretty open. And, uh, and so I was able to fill in there probably 20 times over the course of four or five years. Now, the funny thing about this, it has a point, or what I'm getting to. The funny thing about this is there was this wonderful Egyptian brother uh, who was um, up in years, and every time he would introduce me, he would butcher my name. Uh, he would call me Grantham, or uh, Gideon, or Gordon, or sometimes he would just make up a G name. I have written down some of my favorites. And by the 10th or 11th time that he was introducing me, I stopped correcting the guy. I just rolled with it and introduced myself as whatever name he introduced me as. And everybody got a kick out of it. But some of them were Grantham Larson uh, or Gypsum Larkham. Uh, my favorite of all time is Gypsy Lingo. <laughs> I have no idea where he got uh, Gypsy Lingo, but he would call me. And, and every once in a while, I would see Julie from the back just getting church giggles, right? You get church giggles, your shoulders go up and down, and you just begin to laugh in your seat. And she, she just got church giggles, and I couldn't look in her direction, uh, or I wouldn't be able to preach. Introductions can be tricky. And if you get it wrong, uh, you could blow it for everybody, right? But if you don't, if you exaggerate it, if you go too far the other direction, you can blow it as well. This author is introducing Jesus. He's introducing Jesus, the most important figure in the universe. And he's introducing him to a crowd, a mixed crowd. Some of them love Jesus. They, they raise their hands, they pray, they sing, they worship. They're daily on their faces asking Jesus the King to empower them and strengthen them and forgive them. And they're pleading with Him to save their friends and neighbors. Others in the crowd are just hardened. They've heard a thousand messages. They, they don't believe in Jesus. They're not committed to Him in any way, shape, or form. And this author has this opportunity to introduce him. And so he tells them seven specific ways 
that Jesus is superior. He was appointed the heir of all things through whom the world was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. And number seven, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son, according to Al Mohler, is defined in Hebrews in a way that demands that readers recognize the divine character of God. To have a low view of Jesus. To consider Jesus just a moral guy who had some nice things to say. To consider Jesus as a teacher. Or to consider Him just as a, an exaggerated miracle worker that we really don't know. To, to have a low view of Jesus is to have never really gazed at Jesus at all. To never, never really trusted Him. To never really look deeply into who He is. And taken seriously who he says he is. And so this morning I want to show you in the words of the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, how supreme and superior Jesus is to anything else that you would ever be tempted to give your life to. And you can give your life to a lot of things. You can give your life to a career. You can give your life to money. You can give your life to relationships. You can give your life to hobbies. You could spend the rest of your life just enjoying yourself. You could give your life to a lot of things. But the author of Hebrews wants you to know that there is nothing more supreme that you could give your life to than Jesus Christ. I hope and pray this morning that God impresses upon you the richness of who Christ is and the, the amazing love that He has for you that He would call you to Himself. This passage is so wonderful. I encouraged you last week to memorize it and to meditate on it. I got several texts this week from many of you that did that. And I'm so happy that you were able to, to steep yourself in this word. It's such a rich passage. If you didn't do that last week, I encourage you to do that this week. I promise you won't regret it. We talked last week about the four contrasting ways that are in this first two verses. There are four contrasts. Long ago uh, he spoke, but now he spoke in this way. In many ways he spoke, but now he spoke in one way. In many times he spoke, but now he spoke at this one time. He spoke to our fathers in particular, but now he speaks to us, the recipients of salvation. Now we get into these seven specific ways that Jesus is supreme. Now, the first one is that he's the heir of all things. The heir, not the A-I-R, but the H-E-I-R. What's an heir? What's an heir? An heir is, uh, we don't quite grasp it the way a cultural Israelite might grasp it. We think of an heir as somebody who inherits something, right? You inherit some money, you inherit some property, maybe you inherit a trait or a quality, but an, an inheritance to us or for an heir for our American culture is basically to receive something from someone who has passed on. But that wasn't the way that, that the author would have meant it to the audience because when they heard the word heir, it was different. The writer of Hebrews is using traditional categories of Hellenistic Judaism that his audience would have understood. To be an heir was to be invested with everything. The son is given full authority to do business with the son means to do business with the father. Moreover, if you're going to know the father, you can only do so through his son. To be an heir was to step into the authority, the power, the possessions, and the everything that the father had. And he had one particular heir. It was the eldest. 
And this person would become functionally the father once he received his inheritance. We don't really get this idea. Uh, To be an heir in the Hebrew culture was to become like the patriarch. It was to have total identification with all that the father has and was and possesses. We'll say in your neighborhood, there's a piece of property that you like. (laughs) Maybe you walk your dog there and and, uh, maybe it's a nice park or maybe it's a nice... Maybe it's, uh, it's a coveted piece of property because you know that there is something buried there that is valuable or something like that. But, but in some way, you want this property. And you know, you know that the person who owns it is about to pass away and that it might become available. But then you hear that that person has an heir. Right? And then if that heir comes and he wants to take over that property, how would you respond toward that heir? What would you do differently? How would you react toward the heir, the one who would inherit everything, that would have all the authority, that would have all the power and all the possession of all of what the Father gave him? How would your behavior toward a future heir change? The Bible describes Jesus as that heir. He's the the future owner of all things as his unique relationship in the Trinity. Would you reverence the future owner of that property if you knew that this person was the heir? Of course you would. Of course you would. Jesus tells an interesting parable, however, that when uh, the owners of a vineyard, when the owner of the vineyard leased it out to uh, renters, and as they rented the property, the owner would send delegates to come and receive fruits from the property. And they would beat some, and they would torture others, and others they would kill. And he finally said in this parable, I will send my son to them. I'll send the heir and surely they will treat him well. And when the heir came from a distance, Jesus in the parable says, they saw the heir and they said, come, let's take him and steal his possession. And Jesus was describing this to those religious Jews who would crucify him on the cross. Those people desired the gift of God, but not God himself, not the heir. They didn't esteem the air and we've all been there we've all been in a place according to Romans 3.23 we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we have not esteemed the air have we that's how we're born into Uh, we're born into a condition known as sin and our hearts are darkened and black because of that and so we don't esteem the air but Jesus is the air the second thing he describes is the one through whom the world was created through whom everything was created. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, he, he just says, uh, let us create man in our image. And in John 1, he says uh, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were created. Creators receive special honor and glory, don't they? Do, doesn't our culture honor creatives? Think about how many award shows we have to sit through and watch people stand up and uh, you know, give credit to whatever thing and agent and situation got them where they were. We give special honor to creators. Think about culture, how our culture innovate, uh, how our culture honors creative innovators. Tesla, Gates, Jobs, Da Vinci, Ben Franklin, all these people that we, we give special honor to as creatives. Or great artists like Michelangelo or Rembrandt or Picasso or Monet. We give creative people honor, don't we? 
How do we honor God as the creator of all things? How do we honor Jesus Christ? I'm just fascinated with, uh, sounds kind of weird, but this field around the corner. I don't know what it is about it, but if you dead end at Reliance and you look out over this property, just maybe uh, a mile away or so, half a mile, there's something about it. It changes in the seasons. There's a tree in the middle. Just last week, there was nothing in the field, and now it's growing, and there's crops, and there's produce, and there's, it's, just a, it's just a scene that every day I pass by, and my phone is full of pictures of this property. I just love it. And, and at times when I'm leaving work, there's a sunset, and it's purple, and it's beautiful, and I look at that, and I just think, God is so creative. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Right, raise your hand. I've never been. You're, you're very uh, fortunate. I want to go. Uh, but I've heard that there's just an overwhelming sense of awe as people approach uh, this incredible landscape. We think of that and we understand that Jesus as the creator of all those things, Jesus is the one who gave existence to that which didn't exist before through the power of the word. God created all things through Jesus Christ. How can there be any more extreme, incredible, supreme place than as the Creator. It's not just that. The third thing is, He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, from a human perspective, we understand the sun has rays and the light hits us. And, and to equate a ray with the sun doesn't translate. But from, from this perspective, he would have understood that, that the ray is inseparable from the sun itself. That God Himself and Jesus, they are exactly the same. They are exactly the same. Throughout history, throughout Scripture, we see this light and dark understanding. If the Old Testament seems incomplete, it's because it is. Jesus is the completion of the Old Testament. He's the climax of redemptive history. And the author of Hebrews highlights this truth with this idea that, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. You remember these passages where in Revelation 21 that the city of God, this new creation, doesn't even need a sun because the glory of God shines on it. That Jesus is the sun that, that radiates, that gives light. All of these things show that Jesus was in fact God Himself. The next passage says it perfectly, that He is the exact imprint of His nature. You think about the Old Testament, and many of us love the Old Testament. There's that one quote that, that the Old Testament is like the, uh, a room that's dimly lit. Richly furnished, but dimly lit. That in, in all those ways, you can barely see all the richness of the room around you. But in all those ways, all the furniture, all the types, all the shadows, all the different things that we see in the Old Testament were insufficient as they pointed to Christ. But in Christ, He fulfills all the types, all the shadows, all the different things that we see in the Old Testament that were incomplete, we see in Jesus. That He, when God spoke, He spoke clearly. He spoke clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Jesus received worship while He was on earth. He didn't hesitate when people got on their knees and they began to worship Him. He didn't say, no, reserve your worship for God. He received it. Jesus forgave sins, didn't He? He healed people. He did miracles. And in all these ways, Jesus demonstrated that He is the exact imprint of God. He was the exact imprint of God. 
the fifth thing is that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Last week, uh, I took my little sister to New York City to see the Statue of Liberty, and we started the day in Rockefeller Plaza. And uh, if you want uh, slow torture for me, just send me to New York City in that, uh, in that uh, particular area right there. Uh, I'm not a big fan of just the big crowds and all that, but as I was kind of hanging around that area, uh, you see in all these places this statue of Atlas holding the world, right? In Greek mythology, this uh, Atlas is the one with the, the, the planet on his back. Uh, a few months ago, we highlighted a resource uh, called The Imperfect Disciple, great book by Jared Wilson. And I think in chapter 7 or 8, he describes a scene in which, I think it was Bertrand Russell, that was giving a presentation about the cosmos. And he, he said um, uh, that the sun is the center and that all these planets revolve around it. And at the end of his speech, the scientific speech, this uh, elderly woman stood up after his talk and publicly rebuked him and said, no, the earth isn't a sphere revolving around the sun at all. She said the earth is actually like a plate and it rests on the back of a giant turtle. Uh, and the, the speaker, it might have been Bertrand Russell, just kind of smiled and said, well, what's, what's the turtle standing on? Uh, and she said, young man, it's turtles all the way down. You know, our world struggles to get a concept of how the world is held together. Uh, and Jesus, in this passage, he's described as the one that sustains everything in the universe. And we, don't, we understand this not as a Greek myth as though he's under the world holding it together physically, literally like that. But we understand that through the creative forces that he made everything, that he is the one sustaining and holding all things together. And the biblical reality is that the God who spoke the universe into existence with all its glories and wonders and mysteries is, is also the one who holds it all together. If you need a new passage this week to meditate on, let me recommend Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Let me just read it for you. It's so amazing. Another very clear Christological passage to memorize and meditate on. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that true? That Jesus is the binding force in creation. He holds it all together. Conversely, everything would fall apart if there were no Jesus. If Jesus were not there sustaining, everything would fall apart. Jonathan Edwards preached, and he used this amazing language. You probably remember it in this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that there is not one thing that we can do. There is not one future breath that you have that God doesn't grant you. At any moment, an amoeba a stray virus, anything at all could take us. He described it as a spider web, a spider being dangled over fire, and that at any moment, that spider web could collapse. Did you know that there's not one breath that God loans you that is, is deserved by us? That at any moment, He could, at His will, 
In this sovereign plan, he could do anything he likes with us. We are, in fact, his creation, by which he can do whatever he chooses. And in Christ, your life holds together. Conversely, outside of Christ, you probably recognize the destructive forces of sin all around you. You probably recognize it in your own heart, the destructive forces of sin. All these things fall apart outside of Christ, but in Christ, things pull together. Life has meaning and purpose and hope and joy for a future. The same hope that enables martyrs to freely give their life without denying Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to hold all things together. The sixth thing is he made purification for sins. And at this point, we take a left turn because what does sin have to do with all these big cosmos, big universe kind of things that the author of Hebrews has been introducing? He's been talking about all these big things, but now he introduces purification for sins. And this is interesting because what does Jesus have to do with sin? What does a holy God have to do with sin at all? Nothing. He has nothing to do with sin at all other than the fact that he saw us in sin and in distress and went on this rescue mission. This rescue mission to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 says. Jesus made purification for sins. He made purifications. And to the Hebrew audience, this would have made a ton of sense, right? They were steeped in the Levitical law by which they, for everything they did wrong, it cost them something, a sheep or an animal, or a bird. They had to sacrifice with blood something valuable, something meaningful, something innocent every time they sin. How many of you sin this morning? Lots of us, right? Of course, we can't do much without sinning. What if for every sin you committed last week, you had to sacrifice a pure, unblemished animal? You had to literally sacrifice it. How painful and difficult would your sin, the results of your sin would be evident always before you. You would see. And these Jews knew that. They were in a temple understanding. They had this Levitical mindset of innocent, clean animals dealing with their sin issue. The killing of a spotless, innocent, expensive animal temporarily, symbolically atoned for the sins of the people. And yet here we see that Jesus made purifications for sins. Not a hundred times, not a thousand times, not, not so many times for every sin that we commit, but once for all, Jesus made purification for sins. Hebrews 9, 21 through 22 says, In the same way that he sprinkled the blood with the tent and the vessels, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no forget. Jesus made purification for our sins. We understand this as the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. That Jesus took our penalty, the penal substitution. He sub- substituted himself for us. It was supposed to be us on the cross. We were the ones who were supposed to die for our sins. Yet Christ took the punishment for us. 1 Peter 3:18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And the final way is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The seventh thing that the author of Hebrews wants 
you to know about Jesus is that he's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You probably remember that scene in the Gospels where uh, the disciples, they want this place of honor next to Jesus. And so I think they send their mother over, right? They send their mother over and say, uh, will you go ask this of Jesus? And, and they say, uh, you know, Jesus, we want you to do for me whatever I ask. And they say, well, what, what do you want? He said, can you give us the seats on your left and on your right when you come into your glory? And he says, are you able to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? And they think, well, yeah, sure. Sure, we can suffer that way. And in the ultimate um, swap, Jesus says, well, you're going to suffer, but you can't have those seats, right? You're going to suffer anyway, but, but you can't. Those are places given by the Father. Those are places of honor that only the Father can designate. And Jesus being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high shows the completion of his work. We're not waiting for another Messiah. We're not searching for the chosen one to come and redeem us. He's already there. He's already seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He is currently residing at the most exalted place in the universe. So what are you supposed to do with a message like this? What's my prayer? It's been my prayer all week that that your view of Jesus would be, would, be, would be lifted higher. That if you have a small view of Jesus as just this good man, or as this moral teacher, or as this inflated legend, or in some way, if you just see him as a prophet, or maybe an example, maybe a kind, loving person, but not who Scripture says he is, I want you to have an elevated view of Jesus. By gazing at who he is, everything else in the world loses its shine. And its temptation is diminished when you see how wonderful Jesus is. Do you remember Mary and Martha? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus just in wonder at who he was. And because of that, Martha got angry. She was doing work. And she came in to complain to Jesus. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? And sure, Jesus cared, but he said, listen, she chose what's best and it's not going to be taken away from her. Meaning what's greatest is to spend time at the feet of Jesus, just gazing into his wonder and glory. Listen, if you have a small view of Jesus, I I struggle to see you as the one, as a born again believer. If it's hard for you to sing songs of worship to Jesus, if you look at the cross and you're not stirred, by the idea that I'm supposed to be there, you may fall into this camp as a cultural person. You're just here because it's, a, it's what your grandparents did, and what your great-grandparents did, in the same way that I was raised Catholic and an atheist. How does that go together? Because I was culturally Catholic. I knew when to stand, sit, kneel, dip, cross, peace to you and also to you. I knew how to do all that stuff. Not because I believed it, but because I was a culturally Catholic atheist. You can be culturally Baptist, you can be culturally Presbyterian, you can be culturally Mennonite, you can be culturally anything, but it doesn't mean that you have any affection for Jesus or that your behavior is in any way changed by His claims and who He is. So I'm praying that your view of Jesus is is lifted higher and that you'll come to faith in Jesus. Father, that's our desire this morning, that you would show us Christ, that he would be high and lifted up. Your word says, you promised that if Jesus is lifted up, he would draw all men to himself.
And so in an insufficient, weak way this morning, I have attempted to bring attention to how glorious you are. So my prayer that throughout this message, your Holy Spirit has been speaking, reasoning, strengthening, challenging, convicting, showing people that in Christ is the exact imprint of you, Father. And there is no other high place for him. He is exalted to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Would you help us to yield to him today? For those who have never given their life to Jesus by faith, it's our prayer that you would, that you would yield to him. That you would stop trying to live life by your own authority. Experience the peace and the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus offers today. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for who you are and for what you accomplished on the cross for us. We pray that you would receive our worship, not just as we sing or give or listen to a sermon, but, but as we walk through life, it's, as well as we wake up tomorrow morning and, and, and throughout the week that we would be living lives of worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.